I uh, guess I should say to quote the famous song, it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas around here. And uh, we at uh, High Point, we uh, the, immediately the Sunday following Thanksgiving, we're in full-blown Christmas mode. Um, and next Sunday, I am going to begin a new Christmas series that we're titling The Gift. But today, we are going to complete our current series that we took a break from uh, last week for Thanksgiving called I Promise. And this has been a series, a series of sermons that has been designed to help us to do a better job of embracing one important foundational truth. God can be trusted to provide what he promises. So it's been a time for us to reestablish our belief and our trust in God to do what he says he will do in our lives. And we've looked at areas where God has clearly made promises to us. In week one, we talked about God's promise to provide for your need. In week two, we talked about God's promise of hope. In week three, we talked about God's promise for a future. And today, we are going to end with the greatest promise of all, God's promise of eternal life. Because through his death, Jesus' death and resurrection on the cross, he defeated death in the grave, and therefore, death no longer holds power over you and I. What I mean is even though our bodies, our physical bodies die and give way, our spirit, the very essence of who we are, continues to live on forever. And because of this truth, a very important question needs to be asked. Where will you spend eternity? The answer to that question depends solely on whether you have received salvation and accepted Christ Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. Because those who do will spend eternity in the presence of God, while those who choose to reject Christ will spend eternity totally separated from him. And believe me, that is not an option that anyone should ever choose. Our scripture reference this morning is going to be found in the book of Luke, chapter 16. So in preparation, you can go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew pocket in front of you, or of course, the scriptures will all be on the screens behind me. This story that we're about to read is about a person who lived thousands of years ago and who made the wrong choice. This man's main goal in life was to accumulate and to enjoy vast quantities of wealth and everything that this world had to offer. Now, this is nothing new. This has been going on since the beginning of creation of mankind. It's the same philosophy. It's just a totally different story. So let's read Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. I will be reading from the New International Version. Scriptures say there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me 
and send Lazarus to dip his tip of his finger into water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. What we just read is a story of of great contrast. And as we do our in-depth study or review into this, we're gonna focus on three of them. And the first one that I want you to notice from this story is there is a contrast in life. On one hand, we have someone who is incredibly rich, who in verse 19, it says this, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. This sentence makes clear that this man was very wealthy, and let me explain why I say this. First, when Jesus said that he was dressed in fine linen, he was referring to his undergarments and saying that they were the best of the best. In other words, this guy didn't buy Fruit of the Loom at Walmart. The the linen that he wore was custom made from the flax that grew on the banks of the Nile River. It was white and it was very soft And on top of that, it kept him very cool in the warm Palestine climate. And since this imported linen underwear was so expensive, it was only worn by the very rich. Only kings and queens could afford it. And this guy apparently had drawers full of the stuff. But his outer garments were equally as impressive. Jesus tells us that his robes were made out of purple, a fabric that was normally reserved for royalty. You see, in those days, the process involved in extracting the purple from dye from the the shellfish was very expensive, but this man was wealthy and it didn't really matter to him. I mean, he probably had closets full of jewel-encrusted robes and capes, so much so that it didn't bother him if he had to throw a cape away just in case Lazarus might have touched it or infected it. Who knows? But not only were his clothes expensive, So was his home, it was a palatial estate and it was filled with all kinds of servants. I mean, this guy, he had it all. He lived in dazzling splendor every single day and he wanted everybody to know how wealthy he was. While some people are quiet about their wealth, this man strutted around like a proud peacock. I don't know if he was as loud as the peacocks I had up on the screen a few weeks ago, but he was was strutting like a peacock for sure. You know, while some people are able to to splurge once in a while, this guy, he lived in opulence and he feasted on the finest foods available at that time. But on the other end of the spectrum, you have Lazarus, who is a beggar, a man whose home was a series of places like the portion of the sidewalk outside of this rich man's palatial estate. 
Jesus said that he laid there every day. And that word laid means Lazarus was not able to walk. Someone had to carry him and put him in front of that gate every morning. Perhaps he was carried to other places to beg at other times of the day. I don't know for sure, but I think it's safe to say, in contrast to this rich man who had everything, Lazarus was in need of literally everything. He had no home, he had no health, he had no food. He was forced to beg from the scraps of this rich man's table. And please understand, these were really less than scraps. You see, the phrase in verse 21 where it says, and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table, this referred to the bread that rich people used as napkins to wipe the grease and the gravy from their mouths and their beards and their hands. So really, the only food that Lazarus received was a first century version of, of dirty paper towels. And while this rich man was clothed in purple, Lazarus was clothed in oozing ulcers. And instead of servants, Lazarus' only companions were other outcasts, stray dogs who would come and, and lick at these oozing store, sores that covered his body, which no doubt only added to his agony. And if agony wasn't enough, his contact with these dogs made him unclean in the eyes of the Jews of his day, causing some of them to actually spit upon him as they walked by. So on every level of this story, there is a definite contrast in life. But secondly, in this story, we see a contrast in death because verse 22 says that both of the men died. When Lazarus died, he was probably carted off to the city dump and burned along with the rest of the trash. But when this rich man died, he would have had a glorious send off, the best funeral that money could buy. Because in that culture, when wealthy people passed away, do you know the families hired professional mourners? They would hire people to come and ball their heads off to make this person feel like they were really loved or their family to feel that way. And they purchased costly spices for the body and they used elaborate tombs for their burial. And you can be sure that the whole town showed up and listened to the shrieks and the cries and lamentations of these paid uh, uh, weepers. They also no doubt heard a litany of praise that was heaped upon the rich man by countless eulogies of friends and officials and, and, and so on and so on. But death changed everything. And that leads to the third contrast in this story, a contrast in eternity. Look at verses 22 and 23. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. Now, some of your Bibles say that Lazarus was carried to Abraham's bosom. But whatever your translation, it means that Lazarus was taken to heaven. A banquet was held in his honor. And in that culture, the most honored seat of that banquet would be next to the host who in this case was none other than Abraham. And the honored one would recline in such a way that his head was near the host's chest. 
So Lazarus, the one who had yearned to receive table crumbs and and scraps, was now feasting at heaven's table and seated next to none other than Abraham. But in an amazing reversal, no angel carried the rich man to heaven. Jesus said he found himself in hell where he was in torment. Verse 24 says that he cried out in a parched voice, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the finger, tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. What a contrast. Before he died, he could have anything he ever wanted to eat or drink, but now all he wants is a single drop of water on his parched tongue. And what I find really interesting about this is even though he was indifferent and maybe even apathetic towards uh, Lazarus when they were both alive, this man still has no problem, even in these circumstances, treating Lazarus like he was some kind of a personal servant. How ironic for him to ask a favor from the very person who, he, who never received a favor from him during his life on earth. So this morning, what I wanna talk about is what you and I can learn from this very familiar story. And I think the first obvious lesson for us is, is, is obvious, everyone dies. I realize this is not an uplifting uh, thing to talk about, but we're gonna talk about it. Jesus' account shows us that it doesn't matter how rich you are or how much material wealth you accumulate, everyone dies, rich and poor alike. And the second obvious lesson that we learn is that death is the great leveler. I said to you several weeks ago that the ground is level at the cross. Well, in death, the ground is level as well. Because unlike what that famous mantra says, he who dies with the most toys still dies, folks. And all his toys are gonna stay right here on this earth. So the fact we must take from this story and program into our thinking is a sobering truth that life is temporary. Now you 20 year olds in here, you're probably letting this go in one ear and out the other, and I get that. I was 20 at one time myself, and I thought just like you did. But life is short, folks. Hebrews 9.27 says, it is appointed to every man to die and then to face the judgment. There's a website out there called Life Clock. You can log on and answer a few questions about age and weight and height, and, and, and they'll compute how long you have to live. They even immediately after you do it, put a clock up, and it's a, it's a countdown clock to tell you how much time you've got in hours, minutes, and seconds. Well, I logged in, and guess what they predicted? I have another 13.5 years to live. And I gotta tell you, I didn't think that was very generous at all. Would you? I don't care what age you are. Nobody wants to hear you have 13 years to live. Oh my gosh, I got 13 years to do everything I wanna do. No, but it didn't bother me. It really didn't. I laugh, just like I'm laughing right now because only God knows when I'm gonna take my last breath. And, and, And there's nothing's gonna happen that's gonna change that. It is appointed to every man wants to die. God knows my appointed time. He knows when I'm going. 
Unless Jesus raptures his church first, we're all gonna die at some point in time. And I know it's unusual to talk about. And I know it's not an uplifting subject, but it's true. We all have a limited shelf life on this earth. And Jesus' story shows us that neither the size of your bank account nor how famous you might be has any impact on that reality. Death is indeed the great leveler. In his, story, in his book, Healing Grace, author David Siemens ends his book with this story, and I'm gonna do my best to read it because it's very proper, so bear with me. For more than 600 years, the Habsburgs exercised political power in Europe. When Emperor Franz Josef, the first of Austria, died in 1916, his was the last of the extravagant imperial funerals. A processional of dignitaries and elegantly dressed court personages escorted the coffin, draped in the black and gold imperial colors. To the accompaniment of a military band's somber dirges and by the light of torches, the cortege descended the stairs of the Capuchin Monastery in Vienna. At the bottom was a great iron door leading to the Habsburg family crypt. Behind the door was the cathedral or excuse me, was the Cardinal Archbishop of Vienna. The officer in charge followed the prescribed ceremony established centuries before. Open, he cried. Who goes there, responded the Cardinal. We bear the remains of his imperial and apostolic majesty, Franz Josef III, by the grace of God, Emperor of Austria, King of Hungary, Defender of the Faith, Prince of Bohemia, Moravia, Grand Duke of Lombardy, Venezia, and Sturgia. The officer continued to list the emperor's 37 titles. We know him not, replied the cardinal. Who goes there? The officer spoke again this time using a much abbreviated and less ostentatious title reserved for times of expediency. We know him not, the cardinal said again. Who goes there? The officer tried a third time, stripping the emperor of all but the humblest of titles. We bear the body of Franz Josef, our brother, a sinner like us all. At that, the door swung open and Franz Josef was admitted. Listen, church. It doesn't matter what you have in terms of fame or fortune. Nothing is going to open the doors of heaven for you and I other than by the grace of God and the work that Jesus accomplished on the cross. Rich or poor, anybody who will humble themselves and ask for forgiveness of their sins and, and understand their need for salvation from a loving Lord and Savior, that is the truth. Simple as that. And that leads me to the second fact we can glean from this, this story. Number one, not only does everyone die, but number two, everyone lives after they die. Jesus said that neither this rich man nor Lazarus ceased to exist when their bodies ceased to function. They just left this world and they entered eternity where they continued to live. There was no lapse of time. There was no pause in action. There was no break in the narrative. They both went right on living, just in a different place, 
In addition, in this change of residence, they retain their personalities. They retain their character. As I said earlier, your spirit lives on and your spirit is the essence of who you are. So Lazarus was still Lazarus and the rich man was still the rich man. Lazarus, whose name means God is my help, he rejoiced at being in the presence of the God that he had worshiped and relied on during his life that he lived on this earth. And the rich man is still ordering people around and he's only thinking about himself. Remember, he asked Abraham to help his family, to help his brothers, but he didn't have a single thought for anyone else. And in their new home, both of these men could see, they could hear, they could feel, they could recognize, they could remember, they could speak, they could reflect. So, so no doubt about it, they went right on living after they died. You know, we refer to this world as the land of the living, but it's not. This world is the land of the dying. Again, I'm not trying to depress you. This is truth I'm teaching you today. We are all gradually dying. From the moment we come out of our mother's womb, we start in a descent. And when we die, we will enter into the true land of the living. And on that day, we will either wake up in heaven or we will wake up in hell, where we will live throughout eternity. And you know, we love to talk about heaven while we hate to even think about hell. It's a horrible word that describes a horrible place. That's why it's used as such a, a popular curse word. It's the best way to wish the absolute worst on somebody that you dislike. In fact, let's be honest this morning. Talking about hell isn't at all popular. When you read about what the scriptures say about the suffering that takes place in hell, it makes us uncomfortable. But ignoring it and refusing to talk about it, well, that makes no sense either because hell is a real place. And whether you realize it or not, the greatest preacher on hell who ever lived was not a hellfire and brimstone evangelist named Billy Sunday. It was Jesus himself. In fact, our Lord had more to say about hell than all the other biblical writers combined. He had more to say about hell than he did about heaven. The great preacher Vance Havner once told of a time when he preached on the subject of hell. And after his sermon, one of his listeners came up and criticized his message. He said to him, Reverend Havner, I don't think you should preach any more hellfire and brimstone messages. You should preach about the meek and the mild Jesus. And Havner replied, but he's the one who gave me all the information about hell in the first place. So the truth is that most of what we know about hell came from the lips of our Lord and Savior. He repeatedly warned people not to go to this horrible place where in Matthew 8, 12, he says, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You have to be in great agony to gnash your teeth. I want you to think about that. Well, folks, that can only happen because we know that when our bodies cease to function, that we go on living. We also know that when people who have accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior die, well, they will continue to live in a place called heaven. And it's a place that is so wonderful that our imaginations and our vocabulary can't even come close 
to describing its beauty. But people who don't accept the salvation that Jesus freely offers, they go on living apart from our Savior that they have rejected. In fact, I believe that it is the absence of God that makes hell, hell. A place of physical and emotional anguish that goes on and on and on forever. Erwin Lutzer writes this, the most sobering thought that could ever cross our minds is the fact that the rich man in hell has not yet received the drop of water for which he so desperately longed. And you know, what I find interesting is that there are many biblical scholars out there who say that the fire of hell is a metaphor. And I disagree with that because there are just too many references in the scriptures about fire and the lake of fire. And I take the scriptures in a more literal sense than metaphors. So the one thing that we must fully understand is that hell is a horrible place. And it's a place that no one would ever want to be in because it will be absent of God's spirit. And that makes hell even worse than the flames and the fire that is mentioned in the scriptures. So according to our text, everyone dies. And when they die, everyone goes on living with God in heaven or without God in hell. And this is precisely why you've heard asked throughout your lifetime in church settings, you know this question very well, if you died right now, do you know where you'd go? People make fun of that question. It's the most succinct and precise question a person could ever ask a non-believer. Do you know if you drop dead right now where you're going to go? And if you can't answer that question, then you need to ask Jesus, you need to urgently ask Jesus to save you. Use the free will that your loving Heavenly Father gave you and confess your sin. Ask Him to forgive you of your sin and ask Him to cleanse you, as the Bible says, of all unrighteousness. God does not want you to spend eternity in hell. This is why Jesus had so much to say about this terrible place. God loves all people, but here's the truth. He values your free will so much that he lets you choose where it is that you're going to spend eternity. People say, why would God send people to hell? God doesn't send people to hell. You send yourself to hell by not accepting the love and the forgiveness and the grace that Jesus offered from his cross. This leads me to the third lesson from this story. Everyone gets a choice. No one has to go to hell. It's our decision. Isaiah 59, two says, but your iniquities have separated you from your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. So it is our sin, not God, that separates us from him. The rich man chose to reject God. Apparently, so did his siblings. Like him, we make our choice in this life, not in the next. And once we cross over into our selection of the two lands of eternal living, we cannot change our mind. There is no going back. 
This is what Abraham was getting at when he, when he told the rich man this in verse 26. Between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. Now the word fixed here means that in hell, everything is permanent. It's immovable. There is no growth. There is no change. And worst of all, there is no hope. Actually, worst of all, there is no God. Proverbs eleven seven says, when a wicked man dies, his expectation will perish and the hope of the unjust perishes. This is because this life, the one that we are living now has an end, but eternity lasts forever, which is why it is called eternity. Dr. James Kennedy wrote, every Hebrew and Greek word which is used to describe the eternality of the existence of God and the eternality of the blessedness of the redeemed in heaven is also used to describe the eternality of the sufferings of the lost in hell. You see, death marks the final separation between time and eternity. Therefore, it's not what happens after you die but what happens before you die that makes all the difference. So to review, number one, everyone dies. Number two, everyone goes on living after they die. Number three, uh, whether you go to heaven or hell, it is your choice. But there's one more truth that we need to take away from this story, which is a little off of what these other three are. Everyone should use their God-given resources to help others. Please don't misunderstand me. We don't get to heaven based upon our good works, and we aren't kept out of heaven because of our lack of good works. And as I said, the rich man was in hell because he rejected God. But one basic and very important fact that this story underscores is that our blessings are not an end in themselves. God blesses you and I so that we can use our blessings to bless others. You see, how we use God's blessings, in my mind, is sort of a mirror that reflects whether or not we are in a growing relationship with God. If we truly love God, we'll be like him in our compassionate acts towards those who are less fortunate than we are. In his commentary on this text, William Barclay underscores this fact. He points out that the sin of the rich man is not so much what he did as it is what he didn't do. I mean, he didn't kick Lazarus as he walked by him on, the, on his stretcher every day. This man was not deliberately cruel to Lazarus. He had just kind of accepted him as part of the landscape. I mean, he just blended in. He didn't even recognize that he was there after a while. Apparently, he thought it was perfectly natural and inevitable that Lazarus should just lie there in pain and in hunger while he wallowed in luxury every moment of every day. This man's sin was that he did nothing to help poor Lazarus when he had vast resources in order to do so. Let me put it this way. His rejection of God's love was clearly seen in the way that he refused to love Lazarus. Because if you love God, you have to love the people that he created. You know what we've seen repeatedly throughout this series is that God is our provider. Well, this text and, and, and others like it 
he challenges us to use his provisions to help those with physical needs. I want to read a few scriptures to you. First John 3:17. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. James 2.15, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing for the, about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. Luke 3.9, Jesus said this, anyone who has two shirts should share with one who has none, and anyone who has food should do the same. So the Bible clearly teaches that we are blessed in order to be a blessing. In his book, Primal, Pastor Mark Batterson writes this, God doesn't want to bless you so you can drive an expensive car. The blessings of God are always a means to an end, and the end is blessing others. We are blessed to bless. Listen, friends, true joy, true wealth, real abundance in this life is not found in getting. It is found when you give. Unfortunately, our culture encourages the getting above everything else. So like this rich man that we're reading about in this story, we tend to spend our lives seeking happiness in the accumulation of temporary things. Years ago, there was a study done with some college students that consisted of two questions. The first, how happy are you? And the follow-up was, how many dates did you have last month? <laughs> In the first test group, the researchers found a weak correlation between the levels of happiness and the numbers of dates. But when the researchers got another group of students, they, they flipped the question, the order of the questions. They, this time they began with, how many dates did you have last month? And the second question was, how happy are you? When they did this, they found a strong correlation between their level of happiness and their love life. Why? Because the sequence of the questions forced the students to focus on their dating status. In short, focusing on how few dates they had had sabotaged their general level of happiness. And psychologists have a term for this. It's called focusing illusion. And I think we all suffer from this kind of an illusion at times because we often are looking for happiness in getting things that we don't currently have. And not to excuse our actions, but part of the problem is our culture and those folks who work very hard on Madison Avenue to warp our focus. They, they make us think we need things we really don't need and, and, and it makes our want list grow more and more and more. And before we know it, we're focusing on satisfying our wants in the belief that this is somehow going to make us happier. Here's an illustration for my point here. Have you ever been in a home that was built 60, 70 years ago? Maybe even 50, maybe shorter, I don't know. The main difference is the closet size. Have you noticed that? The older homes have little bitty closets. And when you buy a new home today, sometimes your walk-in closet is as big as the bedroom I grew up in when I was a child. This is because our focus is on accumulating all kinds of things that we really don't need. In America, our abundance often makes us like this rich man in that all we think about is sometimes obtaining more and more things of this world. 
Well, what we really need is, is to have experiences where we clearly see the need to use God's provision that he has blessed us with to help others who are in dire straits, who are in need. So what about you? Do you find yourself focusing on the world, this world? Or do you find yourself focusing on the next? Could you be so focused on yourself that you're completely blinded to the need that surrounds you? Mark Batterson continued in his writing. He said, the bottom line is this. Your focus determines your reality. If, your, if you focus on your wants, enough will never be enough and your heart will get smaller and smaller. If you focus on the needs of other, others, you'll discover that you have more than enough. If you focus on the here and now, you'll try to hang everything on everything you have. But if you focus on eternity, you'll give away everything you've got. Scott, will you guys come forward, worship team, and help me to, to close this down? I'd like to ask all of you to stand to your feet if you would. I believe that this story that we've read today was designed to kind of shock us into reality. Because sometimes I think we need to be shocked. We, we need to be jolted because sometimes that's the only thing that can correct our focus so that we can get our priorities in order. And one of the reasons that I did this short four-week series um, <clears throat> before Christmas is I believe it's going to help us as we enter into Christmas. Because as we've been looking at just four of God's promises, it helps us to really understand the magnitude of Christmas, of Christ's birth. And like our story, there may be great, great contrasts in um, how we prepare for or even how we celebrate Christmas. Or maybe there's contrast in how we respond as individuals to God's promises. What I mean is, there are people in this building today who are gonna really need to trust in God to meet their personal needs this Christmas. While others in this room are going to be used by God to provide for someone else's need this Christmas. For some of you, God's promise of hope is so obvious within you that you live it out every day and it even goes into hyperdrive at Christmas time while others of you, God is going to use you to bring hope alive into somebody else. For some of you, God's promise of a future has been very, very clear to you. And you will no doubt celebrate that this Christmas while God is going to use others of you to help someone else find a future in Christ Jesus. For some of you, God's promise of eternal life is literally magnified for you at Christmas time while others, you're gonna be used by God to explain to someone who doesn't know Jesus that Christmas is what set into motion Christ's actions on the cross so that he could offer us eternal life. What I desire for myself and for my family and for you, my church family, is for all of us to embrace Christmas like we never have before. I don't know how many Christmases we have left, folks. No one knows that. If we look at the things going on in the world today, we could be out of here today. No one knows. And, and, and if, you, if you're a gambler and you think, well, I'll just hold out, I don't need Jesus. Uh, 
world's been in action for thousands of years. You don't know that it's not gonna end in a second. None of us know. What I want is for us to be so focused on Jesus that everything will fall in second place to the joy that we experience in knowing him and the, in the trust that, that we have in him, a trust that he always makes good on his promises and that you would be open to being used by God to be a vessel to help somebody else trust in the Lord. So my hope is that this series might jolt us out of a complacency and realize the opportunities that lie ahead of us at Christmas. Perhaps you'll see more clearly than ever your need to share your faith with someone who you love, who does not know Jesus personally. And you'll be motivated by your love for them that you'll refuse to stay silent any longer. And you'll refuse not to just let them spend another Christmas without Jesus, but especially refuse to see them spend eternity separated from him. Or maybe this series has, has motivated you to become more serious in showing your love for God by loving other people, especially those you know have great need and minimal financial resources. Maybe you'll be motivated that you'll take care of that family down the street that you know is in a rough place and have presents for their children to open this year. All of these motivations come from a relationship with Jesus. And if you were here this morning and you are not a Christian, then God may have used this study to help you understand your need for Jesus. And when I say your need for Jesus, I mean a personal redemptive relationship with Christ, where he has forgiven you of your sin, you have accepted him as Lord, and you are now serving him in your daily life. Jesus came to offer us a new kind of a life. He is in the life-changing business. And if you were to talk to every Christian in this place today, they all have a testimony. They all have a story of what they were once and what they are now. And talk about a contrast. <laughs> There's a huge contrast. But he cannot change your life unless you are willing to make that choice, to use your free will and make the choice to accept Jesus as Lord. The Bible says that in order to receive salvation, you must be able to confess and believe in your heart. You believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that is the only way to God the Father, that he came to this earth and he lived a perfect life, and he showed us the love of our Heavenly Father, and he died an excruciating death on the cross, and the blood that he shed is the cleansing agent. It's the atonement for your sin. So you simply pray and you say, Jesus, I believe all those things about you, and I ask you to forgive me, and I give my life to you, and I give you lordship over my life, and he will save you. The Bible says he will cleanse you of all unrighteousness. And you can do that by just speaking to the Lord, either in your spirit or out loud, however you choose. We're gonna close this service this morning by singing a song about Jesus. And as we sing, I encourage you 
to talk to the Lord and use the free will that he has given you to make the most important decision of your life. So that if I were to come to you next week and say, if you died today, do you know where you'd go? And you could say, yes, pastor, I know where I'm going. If you wanna come down to this altar and pray, this altar is always open, but we're gonna sing this song. When we're done with the song, I need a few more minutes of your time. After the song, I will ask you to see it again. We just need a couple more moments of your time for a business-related item, and then we will dismiss the service in prayer. Scott. Jesus at the center of it all. And Jesus at the center of it all. From beginning to the end, it will always be, it's always been you, Jesus. Jesus. Nothing. Nothing else matters. Nothing in this world will do. And Jesus, you're the center. Everything revolves around you. Jesus, you center of my life. Jesus at the center of my life. Jesus be the center of my life. From beginning to the end, it will always be, it's always been you.
Jesus be the center of your church and every knee will bow and every tongue shall confess you I think I will uh, pray right now, and then I'll just need a few more of your minutes after we pray. Father, I thank you for this day that you've given us. What a beautiful day it's been. Not just the weather, but your presence in this place. Father, we are so blessed to have a church home like you've given us. You've blessed us in so many ways. And Father, you know the desire of my heart is that everyone in this place would know you in a very personal and a real way. And Lord, if, if anyone here today pray that prayer and ask you to become the savior of their life, Lord, help us as a church to come alongside of them and to disciple them and to help them in their Christian walk, the greatest decision they've ever made, Lord. Use us in that capacity, we pray. And God, as we go our separate ways today after this short time together, I pray that uh, you will keep us safe. You will keep us healthy through this Christmas season, and most importantly, Lord, that we would, we would enjoy this Christmas season and the blessings that you have given to us, and we will have joyful hearts knowing that we serve the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We thank you for this time together, and we thank you for your presence. We give this day and our hearts and our lives to you. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.